Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Let's just bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we see in this passage, God, that this is uh, just a turning point in, in history, Lord, um, <clears throat> we see here, Lord, that um, uh, Satan, uh, through the serpent, Lord, deceived Adam and Eve, Lord, deceived your precious creation, God, um, to rebel against you, Lord. Of course, we'll see here that, that Eve was deceived, um, but we'll see here that, uh, as you say, in the New Testament, we have more shed light on the subject that Adam doesn't say he was deceived, but he just outright rebelled, Lord. And um, Father, I just thank you for forgiving us your word. I thank you for giving us um, this book, this book of Genesis, to share with us um, how you are a gracious God, to share with us how um, even though um, we, as your creation, um, are sinners, Lord, you are a redeemer. And um, we'll begin to see some of that today, um, and we'll see more of it in the coming weeks. And um, Lord, I just, there's so much that we can learn from this morning, God, that uh, Think of like how your word says, no one seeks after God. And, um, and here, Adam and Eve, they, they were not seeking you, Lord. They were hiding from you, but you were seeking them. And we just thank you for that, that you, you sought us out, Lord. Any of us who are children of you this morning, Lord, in this room, you sought each and every one of us out, Lord. We weren't seeking you out, Lord. And um, so we thank you for that. Thank you so much for your grace, God. I pray that you would, um, as it says, open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Um, give us ears to hear this morning. I pray, God, that um, I think of even this morning, God, is uh, sometimes, you know, we, we come to Sunday morning, we come to a message, and we're, we're listening to that message for somebody else, God. Um, kind of like Adam and Eve were doing here. They were, um, they were confessing someone else's sins, Lord, before they confessed to their own. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear this message for ourselves, Lord, this morning, not for somebody else um, sitting next to us. And um, so God, we pray for your grace and we pray that you'd uh, bless our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so if you weren't here last week, um, 
I really encourage you to go to the website and uh, listen to last week's message so you can kind of capture the big picture of what's going on here in Genesis 3. Um, <clears throat> and um, if you listen to that, I promise you um, it was dope. Um, now, you're only going to understand what that means if you listen to last week's message, okay? So I'll just leave it at that. So you'll have to listen to that to understand what I'm talking about. Um, but just a quick review from last week. <clears throat> the serpent, who was um, really either Satan or being used by Satan, got the woman to make some mistakes. And um, um, we laid out five mistakes that she made. Um, and this is how he did that. He set the woman up to do two things primarily. <clears throat> One was to question God's words, and two, uh, the serpent uh, got her to bring into question God's character, or the serpent brought into question God's character and his goodness. Um, and if you think about that, that is really Satan's, um, that's his plan throughout, the, from the very beginning, from the foundation uh, of all of his lies throughout history. It's, it's, it's getting people to question God's word, the validity of God's word, or to impugn God's character. And if you think about any faith struggle that you may have ever dealt with, um, any family member, even unbelieving friends that you interact with, that you're um, praying for to come to the faith, um, I'd be almost certain that you could boil down those struggles to one of these two areas. Um, there may be others, but um, typically it's going to be one of these two things. And I think for, for believing Christians, um, if Satan cannot get us to question the validity of God's words, if we're pretty set on that and we are telling Satan, nope, you're not going to get me there, then um, he's certainly going to make up for that by impugning God's character, God's goodness in our minds. And, um, and I think we all uh, can be tempted um, in this area, um, it would be like uh, Satan getting us to think, is God really working all things together for your good? Is he really for you, 100%? Um, think about uh, why won't he take away that chronic health condition? Why do I have these kidney stones? Why won't these migraines go away? Why do I have this a couple Christmases ago, this for the first time, diverticulitis like, like arose, and uh, I have off between Christmas and New Year, and it's normally a really good time, and we have a lot of family time, and all of a sudden, I get diverticulitis, and I'm in bed for most of the, the time off. So it's like, why, why, why? And um, so Satan will get us to impugn God's character, like, is he really good? Then why is this happening, okay? But I want us to know this morning that if you're God's child, that God is absolutely 100% for us in every way. Um, and I'll, I'll explain this in a little bit. But his will is to sanctify us and make us like Jesus Christ. And the more we become like Jesus, what would that mean for us? It would mean unexplainable joy. Um, in John 15, Jesus said that the one thing he wants for us is that our joy be made full. Um, and then John tells us that the reason he wrote to us about what he had seen and heard in, in 1 John, the same John that wrote the book of John, was so that our joy would be complete. Um, I'll ask you this question. Uh, if I asked you, would you want that for your children, your spouses, your friends, family members? Um, if you would want them to have unspeakable joy, just... Imagine what that is in your head. And, and I ask you, like, would you want unspeakable joy for those people? Uh, would you say yes, or would you say, nah, that's not what I want for them. I'd rather them get that thing that they really, really want, that, that ski boat, you know, or that, that house that they really, really want. Um, I think that you'd probably say, that you want them to have unspeakable joy because I think in your head you're thinking, that sounds really good, really, really good. Um, now, what if in order for your children, your spouses, your friends and your family members 
to be filled up with that joy to the tippy-tippy top. Um, it would require them to go through some valleys and some hardships. Would that change your mind? You don't need to raise your hands. But that's, that's the way it works, okay? That's the way it works. And so God is, uh, it, would, it doesn't change God's mind, okay? Because that's the way God's going to do it. And, and that's what's, that, we're going to see how that plays out here in Genesis 3. Um, but, um, but that is God's end goal. Uh, even though Eve made a mistake and even though Adam outright rebelled, God is still 100% for them. And he will see to it that things will be set in motion that will set them on a course for fullness of joy. But it doesn't look like it, as we're going to see in the next few weeks of, of things that they're going to have to deal with and, and, and multiplying pain through childbirth and, and the ground being cursed and sweat and toil and things of this nature. Um, that doesn't sound like joy to us, right? But, um, but in fact, it is part of the plan to... To, for us to experience fullness of joy. Um, so I wanted to share just a, a quick story here um, as we get into this. Um, perhaps you've heard of, um, of something called the seeker-sensitive uh, church movement. Uh, it kind of started in the 90s. Um, I, I kind of remember, remember that time. Uh, I was in a church where kind of like this, and, and we were going to kind of like change over and do some things uh, like these, the seeker-sensitive church movement. Um, I don't know where it's at today, but I just wanted to share a, a marketing mailer. This isn't something that we did, but um, it was from a seeker-sensitive church that I think went just a little too far. Um, so let me share how this mailer went. Maybe you got it in your mailbox. Um, to make it possible for everyone to attend church this Sunday, we're going to have a special No Excuse Sunday. Cots will be placed in the foyer for those who say Sunday is my only day to sleep in. There will be a special section with lounge chairs for those who feel that our pews are too hard. Eye drops will be available for those with tired eyes from watching TV late Saturday night. We will have steel helmets for those who say the roof would cave in if I ever came to church. Blankets will be furnished for those who think the church is too cold and fans for those who say it is too hot. Scorecards will be available for those who wish to list the hypocrites. Relatives and friends will be in attendance for those who can't go to church on Sundays because it's their only day to get together with them. One section of the church will be devoted to trees and grass for those who like to see God in nature. Doctors and nurses will be in attendance for those who plan to be sick on Sunday. We will provide hearing aids for those who say the preacher is too soft and earplugs for those who think he's too loud. The sanctuary will be decorated with both Christmas poinsettias and Easter lilies for those who have never seen the church without them. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> of course, that's a joke. But um, uh, what I'm getting at here is... Uh, do we want to be sensitive to people coming into our ministry? We absolutely do. Um, do. Do we want to pour our lives into people that God brings into our paths? Of course we do. Um, but what does God say in general about people in general? Um, he says in Romans 3, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So really what God is saying is like, there really, there really aren't seekers. I mean, um, we might, if you think about your own experience of coming to the Lord, um, really it was God seeking after you. Um, is how you came to the Lord. And um, so I think the kind of church that God wants us to be um, is he wants us to be a hider-sensitive church. Um, what I mean by that is we need to be a church that is sensitive to hiders because we all are hiding from God to some degree or another. And uh, even when we come to church, we're very often hiding behind something. And... Um, we may be hiding behind our own righteousness. 
We may be hiding behind a false identity that we've created for ourselves, or we may be hiding behind the impression that we've been victimized, and so forth. Many other things we can talk about in our A&I time. But um, it's interesting because, you know, a lot of times, like, one church might look at another church and say, well, I can't believe they're doing church that way. And this church might say, I can't believe they're doing church that way. But in the end, you know, it's, we're all hiders. I mean, this, this church over here that might think we're, we're doing church this way and, and uh, I can't believe they're doing this seeker-sensitive thing. And th- these guys are like, oh, these guys are too uh, rigid over here and they're, I mean, this, these guys might be hiding behind some false righteousness, and these guys might be hiding behind some surface-level, you know, uh, thing, keeping people at arm's length or whatnot. I mean, the point is, we need to be sensitive to hiders. And um, I think God wants us as a group of believers, and I know it's, it's our desire um, as elders here, uh, that we all have the mindset of come out, come out wherever you are. And why is that? It's uh, because that's how God is. We're going to see here in Genesis 3 that God searches for hiders, and God seeks and saves people who are trying to hide from him. And um, I was trying to think of an analogy this week, and um, this might not be a very good one, but I was just thinking of, of, um, of a hospital. When I had kidney stones for the first time in January, um, I'd never had kidney stones before, so I didn't, I didn't know what it was. So I went to the emergency room, and, um, and, and what did they proceed to do? They asked me lots of questions, like, what this, and, and what about that, and how are you feeling? And they pushed on me, and they, um, they did some diagnostic testing and things like that. And then they determined that um, it was kidney stones, um, so once they figure that out, then they could come up with a plan to, to get me better, okay? And so um, uh, how I picture how our church should be or how our desire that our church would be is that in, a, in essence, we're all doctors. We know how in Ephesians 4 that Paul uses the analogy of the church as like a body it, with each um, each person is a member of the body, is a part of the body, and when each part of the body is doing its part, then the church um, will, will grow, is being built up, okay, in love, he says. Um, but if there's a part of that body that's sick, if there's a part of that body that has an ache, a foot ache, a sprained ankle, a broken finger, then, um, then, then, then we need to help that part of the body to get healthy. And um, uh, if we are not a hider-sensitive church, then it would be like an emergency room where people came to the emergency room and the doctors just let the people pile up outside and, and did nothing to help them. And um, so just I was just thinking that it would be tragic if someone that we knew here, I mean, we come together, a lot of us you know, know each other quite well, and if someone next week showed up, did not show up next week because they died, and then we found out that um, we're so-and-so, and, uh, oh, they, they died. Well, what, was, what happened? Well, they've been battling cancer for the last two years. And if it'd be like, I didn't even know that. That's what not being a hider-sensitive church would look like. Um, so we, God wants us to, to be aware, to know people, to, um, to ask questions, um, to ask questions, to know each other, to be sensitive to um, the brokenness in each other's lives so that we can um, uh, give people hope, okay? Um, I'll, get, I'll get into this more at the end here, but... Um, Let's just uh, pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we left off with verse 6. And um, so verse 6, we see that the serpent basically uh, left the woman with 
a choice. Um, so verse 6 says, um, sorry, I get, this is the Bible I bring here is a study Bible and it's got so many different le- letters. Okay, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, I'm sorry, no, no. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's what I meant, just verse 5. Okay, Uh, so the woman was brought to a decision point. Would she believe the words of God or would she believe the words of Satan? Um, God had said, when you eat this, you shall surely die. And then Satan comes straight out and counteracts that and says, you will not surely die. And uh, so that brings us here to verse 6. And, um, and so I want us to see some of the developments in this passage. Uh, the first thing that we see here is we see the woman starting to succumb to self-seduction. And, um, and this, this brought into my head, and probably has brought into your heads before because I know a lot of you are familiar with this passage, but um, a parallel passage um, is really James 1.14, um, and I like how it's stated in the New American Standard. It says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And that is something that we see going on here with Eve. It's like she, she gets carried away um, and enticed by her own lust. Now, you might say, I mean, at first, she, it says she saw that the tree was good for food. And you might think, well, that's okay. That's God said that they should eat, right? Not from that tree. But in her mind, she's thinking, well, it's good for food. And, and God said, that's practical. We should eat. Um, so that's logical. Um, but then she notices that it was a delight to the eyes. In other words, it was attractive, okay? That sin was attractive, um, I'll, this is a question for the children, okay? How many of you children have either read the books or seen the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia? Okay, do you remember what um, young Edward was, Edmund was tempted by to eat? Do you remember what it was called? Yes, Turkish delight, right? Doesn't that sound delightful? I mean, so it's not like, it's not like sin, it's not like, um, it's not like Satan is going to come to you and offer you Brussels sprouts, okay, right? Uh, Turkish Brussels sprouts. You'd be like, no thanks, okay? That's not going to work. He's going he's gonna to package sin in an attractive package like Turkish delight. Actually, I remember when I read that the first time, I thought, I mean, I don't even think there is such a thing as Turkish delight, but if there was, maybe there, is there? Okay, it sounds pretty delicious, okay? Just, just, just hearing it, okay? And um, so that's one thing that we can learn from this is that the devil packages sin in an attractive manner. And um, this is something that used to, to grate on me, and I think that uh, is something that we can learn even as we, as we talk to children, whether we're parents or whether we're just um, teaching young children. Um, but um, just don't be disingenuous to children, okay? Um, I used to hear a lot of like pastors and youth pastors and stuff, they would, they'd want to like almost like... Um, kind of stress, right, to kids, like, sin is ugly, sin is ugly, sin is ugly, to try to, like, um, especially talking about, like, sexual immorality and stuff to, to kids and whatnot. Um, and I, I get what they meant by that, okay? I get what they meant by that, but probably some of those kids were thinking, well, I don't know what he's talking about because it sounds, sounds pretty, pretty fun to me, you know, so I don't know where he's getting that the, the sin is ugly. But so I, I get what they're, what they're saying about that. But instead of being disingenuous um, about it, I think really what, what could be said is the consequences of sin are ugly 
and, so, and they can even be life-altering. But Satan is going to come as an angel of light. He's going to become, he's going to come as a, as a wolf in sheep's clothing, and he's going to package sin in a delightful package so that he can get away to make something extremely enticing. But if you fall for that bait, when the consequences come, then sin, no matter what, no matter how enticing it is, if you fall for it, Satan has three goals, it says in John 10, 10, um, to steal, to kill, and destroy. And sin will have one, two, or all three of those results, no matter what. And um, uh, it's going to cause that. And uh, it's not, Satan's not going to be hanging around. That person that tempts you into, into falling for that bait, they're probably not going to be hanging around either. They're just going to leave you holding the bag. Um, uh, so when I was in college, just, just know that someone, if Satan is using someone to tempt you to sin, that person doesn't have your best interest, okay, in mind. Anytime someone is, that you, God, the Satan is using, God is, Satan is using someone to tempt you, um, does anyone know what, what Jesus actually said about someone who's tempting someone to sin? He's almost saying that it would be better if they weren't born. But what he said was, it'd be better if they had a millstone tied around their neck and throw that into the deepest sea. A millstone's probably heavier than this thing right here, much heavier. And imagine tying that around your neck and then just throwing it into the Pacific Ocean. It would just take you straight to the bottom and you drowned. That's what Jesus's words are to someone who tempts someone else to sin. Um, when I was in college, uh, before I became a Christian, um, I lived in a dorm room. There was uh, two people in every room and it was a f one dorm floor um, <clears throat> about the length of from you know the front door there to the back door over there. And uh, there were two guys that lived next to me and my roommate over here to, to, to my left. And um, they were like part of the party group that I partied with. And um, so one night there was a party, actually it was like in their room. And the one guy over there, he had an ulcer. Okay, he had a, a chronic ulcer. And I remember somebody thought it would be just a kind of a, a nice practical joke to um, put some 190 proof Everclear into his, uh, into his drink. Well, like, ever, so Everclear is, it's 190 proof, which is like 95% alcohol. That's, it's not, just by comparison, something like whiskey is 80 proof, which is only 40% alcohol. So it's, it's almost like drinking straight alcohol, okay? not quite like rubbing alcohol, but they call it grain alcohol. So, so anyway, um, it was basically gonna rip his ulcer up, okay? It was just not, they just thought it would be funny, but it, it wasn't funny. And uh, um, after the party was over, I remember, I just, I mean, it's something that sticks with me today. I remember that night, I remember, um, you know, these were like center block walls, just, just like these right here. And I remember hearing him moan literally all night long. And you could like, it was almost like a woman giving childbirth, if you will. And, and you could hear it up and down the whole hall all night long. And he was just in such pain. I mean, you almost, I, I don't think anyone called 911, but uh, he was just uh, in extreme extreme pain all night long. And uh, my point about that is that um, after I became a Christian, I started to think about some of these situations that I was in with my party friends um, prior to becoming a Christian, and I realized, well, a lot of those things, you know, is, these guys didn't really have my back, you know. These, uh, everyone pretty much was just doing whatever they wanted to do, out of their best interest, but not not really each other's interests. And that's that's just one story like that. But um, uh, there's others where you know people 
almost got killed in certain situations. But uh, um, so just remember that Satan tempts things and it's going to look attractive, okay? So as we go on here, it says, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Um, that word to be desired, it's, uh, it's actually here, it's used in a passive tense, but it's typically used more in an active um, tense. It's the same word used in the Ten Commandments which says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. So um, in the sense that it's used here, it is, it is basically saying that the fruit um, had a covetable quality about it. It, it, it had this quality toward, that made it want to be covetable, okay? It was almost was like alluring, if you will. Um, it was an alluring, it was alluring. Uh, it had enticing qualities. So what's happening here is that you can see that the woman is beginning to focus and study this fruit. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting out of this package. Uh, I mean, out of this passage. Um, she's, and, and I talked about this last week. She's, I mean, she's starting to fixate on this fruit. And, um, and as we said last week, God never instructs us to make a study of sin. But what does he tell us to do? He tells us to run from it to flee from it, to avoid it. And he knows that we cannot focus on sin and remain neutral, okay? And um, I'm just, I said this last week, but from my experience, once you start to focus on that attractive package, once you start to study it, it's almost over. I almost want to say it is over. I mean, you, 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 it's very hard to like get your mind off of it at that point once you start to, to fixate on it, okay? Okay, so the second development here is that she settles in her heart that she is going to do it. And that's what I'm talking about. I mean, once you start to fixate on the sin, you almost come to a point where you just, you almost lie to yourself saying like, you know, I can kind of play with this, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to like get rid of the ball, and I, I can whenever I want to. But in your, you've almost settled in your heart that you're going to follow through with it, and that's what's going on here. And I, I hope you all can identify with what I'm saying because um, um, that, that's my experience. Um, I want us to notice that the writer, and the way he writes this part, just... Is, is he writes it very straightforward. Um, it just it's straight and to the point. Um, so when we get to um, the end of this verse, it just says she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Um, no playing around at that point. It's just she had made the decision. Um, she was toying with it. She was toying with it, and then. She had settled in her heart that she was going to uh, partake, and she just, she just went for it. Um, and that's what I'm talking about. Have you ever gotten to the point in committing sin to where you, you contemplate and you contemplate, you go back and forth, you go back and forth in your mind, and then you just settle in your heart that you're going to just do it. You turn off your conscience. Your conscience is screaming at you. Um, but then the sin almost becomes like you're just going through the motions because you've already settled in your heart that you're going to sin. That's, that's where Eve was at this moment. Um, hopefully you guys can talk more about that in the, your A&I time. But um, uh, I'd like to have more discussion about that at some point in time. But uh, So the point is, the main point here is like you cannot allow yourself to get to that point. I shared this last week. Uh, how John Piper shared that, um, that little phrase, when the tempter comes, you have about five seconds. And, and really, uh, I just, I, I ran across that a couple years ago, and, and that's never gotten out of my mind, that phrase. 
to where when temptation comes in my mind, it's just God brings that phrase to my mind, Andy, you have about five seconds to just, just discard that. Just discard it. You got to run from it. You cannot start to like play with that thought. You cannot start to play with that. If you start to play with that thought, it's over. Um, so, okay. So let's not skip over. I don't want to skip over this very important phrase here um, that we're going to see. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we don't want to skip over this phrase, her husband who was with her. Now, um, I'm sure that if you guys have read this before, you probably have different thoughts about like, okay, where was Adam during this whole scene, you know, Genesis 3? And um, I mean, I'll tell you where I fall on this. Uh, there, if you read commentaries, different people are on this side, different people are on that side, that Adam was somewhere else and she brought the fruit to him, or Adam was there the whole time that the serpent was talking and he was right next to her and, and, and this and that. I fall on the side that Adam was actually there with, actually with her the whole time. Um, and, uh, and, and she just took and ate and then she handed it to him. And it wasn't like he was on some other side of the garden. And she walked over there and was like, hey, I found this fruit and here it is. Um, some people say that the reason for that is, is because the serpent was using plural, talking in the plural nouns when he was talking to, to Eve. Um, but regardless, I mean, the, again, this is one of those things where whether Adam was right there or whether Adam was a distance away, the important thing to learn here is that Adam took a very passive role in this whole event. It's, it's not really the proximity of his location. It's that he, he was passive as this whole thing was going on. He did not step in to protect Eve from the serpent. He did not step in to protect her from taking a bite of the fruit. He just was passive. And, um, and we learn from the New Testament what was going on in Adam's mind. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this passage from 1 Timothy 2.14, uh, where Paul says, And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived, fell into transgression. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, uh, it says, for as in Adam all die. Um, and I believe that the reason why the Bible is so harsh on Adam and that, the, uh, that uh, sin entered the world through Adam is because Adam knew what he was doing the whole time. Adam, he wasn't deceived by the serpent. He, he wasn't you know, snookered into uh, believing the lie that you shall not surely die, um, according to God's words here. Um, he just flat out was like, there's that fruit, and I want some, and I'm going to eat it, and, and so there. He just flat out disobeyed God's command, and uh, he chose to listen to the voice of his wife over the word of God. So, so man, just put yourselves in Adam's shoes for, for just a minute. And uh, keep in mind that Adam was not deceived. Um, we talked about this on, on Thursday night, and I, I hadn't thought about this until David brought it up. Um, but uh, so Adam knew that his wife had taken a bite from the fruit that God had said, if you eat of it, you shall surely die. So perhaps Adam was thinking, I just saw her take a bite of the fruit and I didn't see her drop dead, so what's up with that? You know, may, 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 maybe, maybe God's not exactly correct on this, and I'll just go ahead and join her in this crime. So that, that's a possibility. Um, but one thing that we know for sure is he did not demonstrate faith um, in this event. Because if he had, he would have believed God's words that she now had a death sentence on her life, regardless of whether she dropped over dead when she took the bite. And that should have caused him to have a very different reaction. Um, if you 
want to compare his reaction to someone who did demonstrate faith. Uh, you can think of Abraham, who God asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, right? And I mean, if you just, anytime you read that passage, you're just like, I, mm, could I do this? I mean, if God asked me to sacrifice my son, could I do this? But, but what we find out in Hebrews when it talks about Abraham's faith is that Abraham firmly believed that if he plunged the knife through Isaac and Isaac died, that God was able to raise him up again, was able to revive him from the dead. And that's where Abraham's faith came in. And so uh, that God could bring him back to life. And so a, a faith response by Adam here should have been, wife, you sinned against God, and, if you, and you are going to die. But that same God whom I saw make you right before my very eyes, I will trust to bring you back to life. Um, or, or really, he probably should have stepped in before she even took the bite. I mean, let's not forget that as well. Um, so let's move on to verse 7. Um, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. <clears throat> so we see that some of the words that Satan said came true. But again, we need to learn that this is that Satan is a liar and a deceiver, and he's never going to tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So some of his lies might still might be half-truths, okay? So the, their eyes were indeed opened, but they weren't opened in the way that they were hoping for, okay? Um, uh, and when you think about what he said to Eve, think about if you were Eve and he said, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. You, would, you might just go, wow. And then you totally like miss the part, knowing good and evil um, because you're just, you, you either minimize that part or forget about that part because you're just so thinking about that you could be like God. Um, so what did they know now that caused them to want to cover themselves? Well, we're going to see that they had feelings of fear. They had feelings of shame. They had feelings of guilt. And um, as sinners now, aware of their sin, they wanted to avoid God through fear. And um, when fear comes, uh, there, or fear comes when guilt is uncovered, and the human instinct is to cover that guilt. And if you think about what we talked about last week, um, starting in Genesis two, at the end of verse two, um, they had they 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 lived in a state where they had nothing high. They were nothing was hidden between them. They lived in this perfect paradise. Um, they were the only couple that ever experienced this perfect integrity between them. Okay, no sin, no, no hidden corners of their heart that they were trying to hide from each other. Um, and these are newlyweds. Um, no one is around looking in on them, but now sin has caused them to feel this need to cover their nakedness from each other. So sin, you can see, is already having an effect on their relationship. And, um, and it's happening very quickly. Okay, so verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Um, this word hid... They hid themselves as used in other contexts for a thickening or hardening of water, like water coagulating to ice. So you can get the idea that another effect that sin is causing in their relationship with God is not only one of wanting to distance themselves from God, but also one of hardening themselves towards God. And I want us also to notice that they hid only among the good trees that they were allowed to eat from. Um, this would be like... Um, 
we used to play a game when I was a kid called Mean Mothers. Um, and uh, so what would happen is uh, we had some friends that were like our age. There were there was three of them, and uh, uh, two girls and a, and a boy. And then it was me and my brother. And and um, how the game went was uh, one would be the mean mother, and they would we'd go back in the bedroom and they would like tuck everyone in bed, and then the mother would say, "Okay, kids, you know, go to bed, and uh, be good." And then that mother would leave, and she'd have a, a spoon for spanking. Okay, and uh, a wooden spoon, and then she would leave, and then after she left and closed the door, then we would just go nuts in there, and um, you know, just bounce off the walls and everything, and then she'd come back in, and then she, you know, we, we'd we'd like try to like dive back into bed and everything, and be like, oh well, we've been here the whole time, you know, just snoring, and some would snore and some would, you know. But it'd be like, well, then how did like all of this, these toys like get in the middle of the floor here? And um, so then, you know, she would administer spankings and um, the, the mean mother person. And then we would trade off being the mean mother. So uh, sometimes, you know, as, as the night got more and more, we'd get worse and we would test the mean mother and we'd run out of the room and run all around the house and she'd have to chase us down and everything else. But... Um, so we got bolder as the night went on, but, uh, that's what's going on here. You just picture like Adam and Eve doing this thing where they, and, and I just wonder if you can identify with this, you know, but like they hear God and then they like quickly run over to like the section of the garden where they're allowed to eat. And then they're just like, well, we've just kind of been over here the whole time, God, you know, um, uh, we haven't, we weren't over there by that tree that we're not supposed to, you know, be eating from. Um, and so if you look at how, um, this sin has affected them, it's already alienating them from their relationship with God. And, uh, how often do we feel the need to go into hiding or even worse, to harden our hearts towards the Lord? Um, does, does sin have that effect on us? Um, and then you just see how ridiculous, you know, sin is already affecting Adam's mind because um, they're hiding, you know, in the trees or maybe even hiding behind a tree and you think like, you think God's not going to see you or something. And um, you can't get away from his presence. Um, and then how do we do the same thing? We sin, and we do this thing of trying. I'm just saying, again, I wish we could just have like a one-on-one dialogue because when I've sinned, I try to hide from God. And I think like, okay, I'll hide from God until I feel like I can come back to God. And the ridiculousness about that is that like God is right here. God, God is in me. I mean, so how am I really hiding from God? And the wonderful thing that we're going to even celebrate this morning in the bread and the cup is that it's God who brings me back. It's not like I wait. It's not like I have to wait to come back. It's not like I have to do some kind of penance to get back to God. It's God, the one who seeks. He's He's the one who seeks me out to bring me back. Um, and that's that's the good news. The good news is that God is not content to leave broken sinners broken. God seeks the hiding sinners. And we see that in verse 8, okay, um, that he is the one who is walking about. He's the one who's seeking them. Um, God was not the passive one waiting for them to come to him. He was actively seeking. He was being intentional. And um, then it's very instructive to us um, who, as I said, in the beginning, when I talked about being a hider-sensitive group of people, that um, God is the one who is asking questions. And in my mind, he's asking questions to draw them out, okay? And you can see that the way in which God asks the questions are to draw the man out and to get the man to understand his nature and to bring him to a point of personal confession. And um, 
It's interesting, but um, I think in times past when I've read this, I used to read this questioning from God with a certain accusatory tone to it. And, and I think that based on whatever your upbringing was or, you know, how, you know, you got caught, you know, uh, with your hand in the cookie jar, you know, as a kid and, and, and your parents dealt with you or whatever, like, why did you do that? Or, I mean, did you, you know, you, you, you almost, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I think sometimes we read these questions from God and we put a certain tone to them, like as if we're thinking about like how our parents might have put a certain tone, an accusatory tone uh, to them. But I don't think that's correct at all. I don't think that, well, first, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, not God. And um, um, I don't think God is trying to shame the man or the woman, but I think he's trying to restore the relationship between the man and the woman. And this is the first time where the man and the woman, he's wanting to show them, I am not only the creator, but I'm the, your redeemer as well. And um, I think God's dialogue here is filled with grace and that he's trying to draw them out, not send them, not close them up and, and by accusing them. So what can we learn from that? When we interact with people of who we want to bring out of hiding, our words need to be filled with grace. That is one thing we need to learn from this passage. Another thing is that we need to encourage people to not focus on confessing other people's sins, but to focus on how their own sins contribute to the issue at hand. Um, a lot of times when, I don't know, I'm sure actually, I know some of you have um, probably counseled other couples or talked to other couples and, and what typically happens? The, most of the time if you're talking to someone and they're talking about their husband or wife, they're typically listing the sins of the other person, right? They're not focusing on their own. And so God is... Uh, you know, he's going to try to get them to get to their own sins, even though they start with deflecting, right? And, um, and we do a pretty good job of deflecting, right? Um, what's interesting is, uh, <laughs> so I asked my mom this question this morning coming to church because I, I just popped in my head uh, yesterday when I was thinking about this. Self-vindication, that's what we see going on here, right, with Adam and Eve, um, I won't ask for a show of hands, but, <laughs> okay. It's almost like anyone I've ever known who's gotten a speeding ticket, okay, just, just smile if you think this is true. But like, I mean, all of my kids that have gotten speeding tickets, it's just so funny. And, I, and again, I asked my mom this morning, and I said like, when you got a speeding ticket, did you think it was justified? No. You know, that guy said I was doing 37 and a 25. I wasn't doing more than like 30 or something or whatever. And just every one of my kids, every time they got a speeding ticket or any time I get a speeding, if I've gotten a speeding ticket, I'm just like, and they're like, you were doing this and a this. And you're like, no I, no, I wasn't. I was only doing, and it's just so funny because you're like, you're admitting to the crime but you're wanting to argue that, like, that guy had it wrong. I wasn't doing 55 and a 25. I was only doing 45, you know? So it's just, it's just amazing how, you know, we're just like Adam and Eve here. So, um, but they finally get around to confessing their sins um, and that they admit that they ate the fruit, right? Okay, let me, let me read how this goes. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And you might be thinking, well, those are pretty weak confessions. Um, they don't sound very contrite. But before you get self-righteous on Adam and Eve, here I want you to think of your confessions of sin to God and think about if they are perfect, humble, contrite prayers of confession um, just like I was just bringing up the thing about the speeding tickets, but admissions of confession of sin are one of the hardest things to do. 
And I think the thing we see here is that God, in all of his graciousness, accepts their imperfect admissions of confession. You know, maybe we would like to see Adam and Eve just like fall on their faces and say, I'm so sorry, God, that I ate. But that's not what we see here. They just, they try to deflect first and then they say, and I ate. But God, he, he, he accepts, he's gracious to them and he accepts their admission of confession. Um, now, what we're going to see next week or in a couple of weeks is that God does deal with them uh, with absolute resolution because there are absolutely consequences um, that he explained uh, that would, would happen um, if they ate that fruit. Uh, but we will also see that God goes so far as to cover them with grace and he serves them. So I started off by talking about us being a hider-sensitive church. What would that look like if Liberty Hills Bible Church became a church where hiders could come out, come out wherever they are? To where we all became very sensitive to ones who are hiding all around us. It may be someone who confesses that their marriage is not all that they wished it could, would, would be. It may be someone who confesses that their religious experience has not lived up to the billing that they were hoping for. It may be someone who confesses they're struggling with their kids. It may be someone who confesses that fill in the blank. But this is how I think it would look. I think we all need to have our antennas engaged to people around us. And let's suppose someone comes to you this week and in the course of your conversation, if some confession of brokenness comes up, we don't turn and run the other way. And I hope you can understand what I'm saying there. Um, we come to the realization that God may want to use you to help be a doctor in that person's life right now to help bring healing. Um, and when I say like turn and run the other way, and when someone kind of confesses some brokenness in their life, I'll just confess that sometimes it can look like this will sound spiritual and saying, hey, I'll pray for you, brother or sister. And that kind of allows us to stay at arm's length. Um, or at a surface level where we don't really have to get drawn into their situation of brokenness. Uh, but at the same time, it does nothing to help draw the other person out to where the real healing can take place. So I just wanted to express that, that um, if God gives us that opportunity um, to be involved in helping someone through brokenness, he wants us to be part of that healing process. What God did was to respond with grace and kindness. He asked questions. Where are you? How are you doing? Questions that draw out, not questions that close up. And as confessions come out, offer resolute words of redemption. Offer words of hope. Um, I don't know how I had this thought. I wish I could remember the circumstance or the incident that happened, but all I remember is, I, I, I wrote this down, I kind of journaled it. All I remember is one time I was like feeling really good about something and I remember why I was feeling good, but I don't remember what the circumstance was. And I remember that it was because something happened to where someone had said something that gave me hope, okay? And, um, and, and it just made me think that um, one of the most important things we can do is give people words of hope. I mean, it just, I, you know, giving people words of hope. And, and when you think of all these examples in the Bible, um, they're, just, they're, they're filled with hope. They're words of hope. And uh, so give people words of hope. Um, and then serve them, just like God served Adam and Eve. We'll see this more in a, in a couple of weeks, how God made coverings for them and provided for them um, as he needed to uh, give them what they needed to, to live in this new state of sinfulness that they uh, would, would be living in. So let's just um, pray if the uh, deacons could come up, and um, I'll close in prayer as we transition to communion. <coughs> Heavenly Father, um, thank you for thank you for your example of seeking us. And Lord, um, 
I think of where Paul exhorts us to imitate you, to be imitators of God, he said. And Lord, I, I just pray that we would, we would be people that would be um, seeking, uh, seeking hiders, God. So many of us, God, need, need words of hope. Um, Lord, I just pray that we would, you'd help us to be sensitive to confessions of brokenness and uh, to be filled with grace, God, and to ask questions and to um, be ones that could just uh, um, offer words of hope and serve one another, God. I, I know that that is something that you, that's how you, that's how you want a church to function. That's how you want a body of believers to be with one another. And God, I thank you that you've made this possible uh, by the fact that you have um, initiated with us as a redeemer and, um, and you've redeemed us. And, and you did it all, Lord. You, you, it's not something that we could do, but you did it for us. You initiated it, God, and, uh, and we're going to celebrate that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.